Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. What uncomfortable, inconvenient things are we willing to do to change the system, not simply to be a consumer? I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Seth Godin never does anything the normal way. Indeed, the infamous change agent, teacher, marketing guru, and author of 20 books has made a career, well, actually a life, out of finding things that have become too normal, then going straight at them and disrupting the whole damn model, making a ruckus, as he likes to say. As many of you know, I've interviewed Seth a number of times. The first time, I think, was 12 years ago, and he was one of my first guests on this podcast. You might recall I made him cry in that episode. You might also know, I often cite Seth as the most authentic expert or or mind that I've interviewed in my career. And it's a question I get asked often. Never have I encountered someone who comes even close to Seth in being able to be so consistent in their principles, in their small interactions, you know, the kind of stuff that you don't see, I guess, in the media or or on website pages. And now the guy has done it again. He was actually inspired by Kim Stanley Robinson's book, the science fiction novel Ministry for the Future. And as you know, Kim was on this podcast a month or two ago talking about that book. So this got Seth writing what he calls a climate Bible. It's called The Climate Almanac. And rather than doing a book the normal way, you know, with an author and a publisher, and you know, the normal and very much crumbling deal, and I speak very much from experience on this matter. He mobilized a 300-person army of scientists, artists, teachers from 41 countries around the world to write the 97,000-word book in 120 days. As well as this, this sort of army produced a podcast network, a LinkedIn course, a comprehensive resource collection, an educator guide, and a children's edition for free. I'll put all of this in the show notes. He and the entire team do the entire thing for free. You know, it's that principle of real artists give first, which is the principle we talk about in our first episode together on Wild. So the wild idea we dance with in this episode is all about not doing tricky things the normal way, shaking things up. And so we cover off how he produced this crazy book project and also how he thinks we should be marketing what he calls atmosphere cancer. In this chat, we cover off why plastic recycling is a trap, and I'll be covering off this in a Substack post pretty soon, how ratcheting up capitalism is the fix, and we talk about leaf blowers and patio heaters. It's always a complete delight to get inside the head of Seth Godin. I think you'll enjoy this episode. Hey, welcome to Wild once again, Seth Godin. Gosh, it's a pleasure to hear your voice and see you once again. Well, your leadership matters a great deal. And it's a miracle that people this far away from each other physically can be so aligned and also talk to each other in real time. So thanks for having me. Look, I really want to talk through two wild ideas that you present to the world right now. First is actually the way that you have produced your latest book, The Carbon Almanac. I'd love you to talk through the process of producing this this behemoth because it's wild and you didn't do it the normal way. Can you talk us through what you actually produced and how you did it? Well, the most important place to start is it's not my book. It's our book, not just the hour of the people around the world who are reading it, 
but the hundreds of volunteers, including me, in more than 40 countries who wrote it together. None of us got any financial upside. All of us were volunteers. Some have worked 300, 400 days in a row without missing a day. The idea was not that I needed a giant team to make an almanac. I've made almanacs, the business almanac, the celebrity almanac back in the old days when I was a book packager. The idea was that all of us are smarter than any of us and that this is a model for how we as a human culture can address our climate problem, which is it's not a me problem, it's a we problem, and that it's possible to do extraordinarily difficult things if we can just talk to each other about it and put in the effort. Mm. It's almost like a representation of the macro problem and how we need to fix the macro problem, that being the climate emergency. And I think it's really interesting. I think it's an incredible idea that we need to get our heads around to solve this climate crisis that we've created. And so I think it needs a shaking up of the snow cone in all directions, including how we present the information, which is what we're going to get to because you've got lots of great ideas for how to view the issue and how to enrol people in it because it's still a massive, massive problem. But I would love you to talk through a few of the granulars of managing a project like this. As you say, I mean, there was hundreds of people, volunteers from all around the world. They went to the extent of actually contacting publishers for you. I had one of your volunteers hand deliver a copy of the book to my letterbox. (laughs) Um, That is the extent that they've gone to. What do you actually, what technology do you use? What processes do you use to stay on top of it so that it doesn't turn into a calamity? First, let me tell you some of the things that this extraordinary group has created. The book is in English, Italian, Dutch, Czech, Korean, Japanese, complex Chinese, simplified Chinese, and soon in Bengali. The free kids edition is now in 17 languages and available online. It's been downloaded hundreds of thousands of times. There's a photo book we did for free with Getty that's been seen around the world. There's more than 40 podcasts and there's a teacher's guide. And that's just the beginning of it. When we get out of each other's way, it's extraordinary how much we can get done. One of the things that was critical here is instead of managing the project, I decided to lead the project. We began with a couple key concepts. And the first one is no one is going to criticize you, but everyone is going to criticize your work. And we will continue to criticize the work until the work is as good as we all can make it. And that lack of ownership of your verbs and nouns was critical. And the second thing was what we called the rule of page 19, which is that there was not one person on our team who was competent and proven effective at building even one page of the almanac. No one knew how to write and research and design and layout and proofread and chart and graph and program any page of this book. Together, all of us were able to make it a 97,000 word book in all of these languages. If you incrementally move something, eventually it will go a very long way. So if we go back to 1909, 113 years ago, they hit an oil gusher in Texas called Spindletop. And from that one gusher, we ended up incrementally paving the earth, growing a billion cows, and wrecking our climate. Not one person did that. It was done drip by drip, bit by bit. And that is how we're going to fix it. We don't have a science problem. We have a marketing and coordination problem, just as the Almanac addressed the marketing and coordination problem, which is if we can get clear about the truth of what's actually happening, there are enough smart people. We don't need a unanimous vote, but there are enough smart people that we can incrementally make change happen before it's too late. Can you break down what you meant by the gusher in 1909? I'm not not familiar with that particular concept. Okay. So if you are really good and lucky at geology, when you dig a well, you hit pressurized million-year-old oil underground, and it's under so much pressure, it blows up the derrick that you put in place. That's called a gusher. And for the nine days when Spindletop was gushing, millions of barrels of oil spilled out. They were never collected. But Texaco, the oil company, was born. What we learned here in the United States and then quickly in Australia and other places is that free energy from the ground is a really profitable business. For very little money, you get an enormous Mm. amount of benefit. All of the systems in our world are based around poorly priced, underpriced carbon. Plastic, cow feed, fertilizer, concrete, 
all of these things are basically on sale way too cheap because for a long time, we were able to get stuff out of the ground for free. I find it really interesting the way that you did coordinate or lead this project because a lot of people in the climate movement have this idea that we need to find the unified thing that, you know, that the song sheet that we're all going to sing to and we need to just get onto the same track and then we can fix this. And a lot of people I come across get frustrated like, well, should we be doing this? And should we be cleaning up the oceans? Should we be doing plastic pickups on our beach? Should we be trying to get our school to go vegetarian or whatever it might be? And I often say to people, yeah, all of that. Don't worry about trying to find the one thing or the coordinated program. It's chaos that got us into this. And it's going to be a whole wonderful, momentous bunch of chaos that's going to have to get us out of this. It's just going to have to be a whole lot of care driving this kind of charge. And I think the way that you've done this book is a wonderful illustration of exactly that. Did you find it did come together beautifully? Did human nature just funnel itself into this way of doing things? Or were there some like little prods that you had to give the situation? The level of brainwashing that we have been subjected to is really significant. Two of the key pieces are carbon footprint, which was invented by British Petroleum and Ogilvy and Mather, the ad agency, to make us feel like hypocrites. This idea that the individual's carbon footprint is what needs to be A, monitored, and then B, lessened, rather than going upriver to the petroleum companies and you know the fossil fuel industries, the automotive industry, and so on. Yes, correct. And thank you for clarifying, because sometimes I talk in shorthand because there's so much to cover. So most of the people who showed up in our community said, well, I'm composting and recycling my plastic, so I'm not the problem. If I could get everyone to do what I'm doing, we'll be fine. It took a week or two of significant example sharing and prodding for people to understand the enormity of the problem in front of us. You feeling like a hypocrite, we are all hypocrites, I am a hypocrite too, isn't relevant to the problem. The problem is that we have basically underpriced something that is costing all of us a fortune. So once we could get past that, then the thing was, we went to the team and said, all right, it's an almanac, which means it needs to cover a lot of breadth. Not so much depth, because there's a footnote on every single page for people to go deeper, but a lot of breadth. What aren't we covering? And someone said, well, what about hydrogen as a battery? Okay, great. Let's add that. There is a hierarchy of the things that matter the most. The hierarchy surprises a lot of people, and the hierarchy is in the almanac. But what we wanted to do was make it so that people could have a conversation. So if someone is listening to this, I hope that in November, when the book comes out in Australia, they'll get five copies and hand four of them out to people. Because the people we need to talk about this problem with aren't going to buy a copy on their own. We hand five copies out at work or at school or wherever. A conversation will happen the same way we have conversations all the time about what's on television, about how to make a living, or about where to go to college. We're just not talking about this enough. And if we don't talk about it, it's not going to get better. One thing um, I did pick up on is that this project was motivated by you having read Kim Stanley Robinson's book, Ministry for the Future, which I probably read around the same time that you did. It blew my mind. And I actually had him on the podcast a couple of, oh, it's about a month and a half ago now. His approach is really inspiring. What exactly was it that inspired you to do this project that you read about in his book, which of course is a science fiction novel? Well, first, I love science fiction. I worked with Arthur C. Clarke, Ray Bradbury, and Michael Crichton before all wow. three of them passed away. I've been reading science fiction my whole life. And a friend of mine said to me, I should read this book. And I read the first 10 pages, burst into tears and put it down because it was just so painful. That opening scene in India, it played out in reality only, I don't know, three years later in India, that heat wave, it came shortly after. You know. Oh, and it's going to happen again, but much mm. worse. And then I read it and it's thrilling, but it's also scary. And I realized that even though I wrote my first blog post about climate change 16 years ago, I hadn't been talking about it very much because I felt stupid. And I said, uh, if I feel stupid, I bet other people feel stupid too. And the fact is that the oil companies and many environmentalists want us to feel stupid, non-perfect. I said, how can I help with that? Because this is the most important issue of our lifetime. Well, guess what? I'm a marketer and I know how to explain things. And I've 
made hundreds of books. So why don't I try that? I had the idea on a Tuesday. I bought the domain on a Wednesday. I invited my friend Louise from Australia and seven other people on a Friday. And by Monday, we were hard at work. My friends at Penguin uh, underwrote the whole thing to pay our expenses and our promotions. And we handed it in a day ahead of schedule in February. You're not trying to sell a book. We're trying to sell an idea. And as a result, we're going to sell um, a lot more books. So let's talk about this idea. We don't have any official prescriptions. Nobody on the team uh, is saying, I speak for the almanac. The almanac is thousands of footnotes and facts and charts and tables. You will understand the climate better after you browse through this for 20 minutes. But personally, I contributed an essay about the four horsemen of the carbon apocalypse, which are combustion, coal, concrete, and cows. And until we price carbon properly and let the market make changes, those four things are going to account for more than 80% of our problem. And the thing about them that is fascinating to me is people say, who's going to come rescue us? But in fact, the 1 billion cows on this planet are responsible for more than 20% of the entire problem, and we could get rid of them in one day. And in fact, we are already discovering that solar and wind are cheaper everywhere in the world, including Australia, than coal. So the wind is at our back if we want it to be. It's not going to be trivial because we live largely in a world without an emperor who can tell us what to do. And therefore, it's not about you becoming a vegetarian or even just stopping eating beef. It's about all of us talking to each other. Every politician should be unable to go to any meeting without this being the first, second, and third issue that comes up. Capitalism, the market, solves problems if it is properly incented. And it can solve this problem, but it is not properly incented. What you're really highlighting there is this interesting and quite challenging nexus between individual responsibility, this whole idea of the carbon footprint myth, and focusing on the system. What can we do to shift the system? And it's such a difficult dance for people to understand, but that's what this book is about. You know, the two interplay, and I'd love you to explain how they interplay. And I think a really good example that I've come across, you've talked about it in the book as well, is leaf blowers. People listening to this, let's focus on it because who loves the drone of a neighbor's leaf blower? Can you talk through that kind of individual versus the collective interplay through the leaf blower example? The thing that people don't know about leaf blowers is that one hour of using a gas-powered leaf blower is the same as driving your car 3,000 miles. That is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. And it's not in dispute. There is nobody who says that's not true. It's super easy to tell. So if that's the case, people say, well, I just won't use a leaf blower. And I will say that will do no good whatsoever because you're just you. But it only takes 20 people to make leaf blowers against the law. In my little village, leaf blowers are against the law six months of the year, and we're working to get them banned all year round. If 20 people show up at the village council meeting, And nobody's showing up on the other side because contractors and landscapers don't go to meetings like that. It'll be banned. And they can replace it with an electric leaf blower, which works just as well, costs less to run, and makes less noise, and emits almost no carbon. When I look out in the world and I say, well, we're talking about this problem like it's serious, and then I hear a leaf blower, I say to myself, (laughs) We're not treating this like it's serious. That's like walking into somebody who's got emphysema and watching them smoking a cigarette. It's contagious because there's been collective action involved. It's not just one isolate doing their own thing. That's exactly right. And the same thing comes up when we talk about how we heat our homes, and it comes up for sure when we talk about what we eat. So if you're getting married and you go to see the caterer and they say, well, we'll serve salmon and steak because that's what we always serve, well, That one decision on your part is more than the 100 guests you're going to be serving meat to. It's the next wedding and the wedding after that and the wedding after that. 
when people who handle the merchandising at the supermarket or figure out the taxation or the subsidies for the ranchers or are running the catering facilities start to say, wow, it's just not worth the hassle for us to put this on the menu. We'll just put chicken on the menu instead. It begins to add up in a really big way. And I think, which is obviously your phraseology, but I think um, the other really important point to note there is that individual action, when we do it with others and we do it in quite a visual way, that actually has big, big impact. We certainly have to stop that emphasis on the carbon footprint of the individual because it's a scapegoat for, you know, for the large petrol companies. But equally, we still need to be doing all of that because it's that, you know, when we all do it and we're all inspired by each other doing it, we get movement. So what about patio heaters? I've heard a couple of commentators get really worked up about patio heaters. It's not such a big thing here in Australia, but where do they sit in this mix? We have a chart inside the Carbon Almanac where we describe what happened during COVID with the sales of propane heaters for the backyard. The short version is a propane heater is basically a quiet leaf blower. It is a disaster, particularly since you're going to run it for hours and hours and hours. But again, what I want to keep coming back to is the carbon footprint thing is the real problem. For example, plastics recycling is a myth. Chemically mixed plastic cannot be recycled. If you're collecting mixed plastic in your house, when they pick it up, they're just going to burn it. You've just made it a little bit easier for them to burn it. That's all they do with it. If you decide not to use a patio heater, thank you very much, but it's not going to make enough of a difference. What we need to do is say, patio heaters are against the law. If they're not against the law, they should be priced fairly. And fairly means that that five pound or 10 pound can of propane should cost five times more than it does. So you would make a different decision based on accurate information. What we are all doing is subsidizing, partly because there are giant companies in Australia that lobby the government to get them Mm -hmm. subsidized, and partly because we've been doing it for a very long time because it's a good way to make your country rich. And so the people who subsidized it for all those years were actually serving the taxpayers in that it made everybody rich. However, when there are alternatives, it's doing the opposite of that because all of us are going to pay for when Sydney is a foot underwater. And Sydney's going to be a foot underwater because somebody who's not in Sydney bought a cheap hamburger. I am wanting to now pick up on something that you've already flagged, and that is this notion of capitalism um, being something of a solution. Really, it's consumption that got us into this mess. And, you know, the idea of trying to fix it with the same thing that caused it in the first place is a little bit insane. But you have other ideas. Can Can you convince me? Well, first of all, again, I'm just speaking for me. But what I can tell you is when someone comes to me and says, the only way to solve the planet is to get rid of capitalism, it's very hard for me to imagine what happens after that sentence. Because there have been a lot of good arguments about getting rid of capitalism through the years, but we have never invented a better way to solve people's problems when it comes to the marketplace being able to get you what you want. There's a big difference between capitalism and industrialism. Industrialism says, how do I, at scale, do what I did yesterday to extract more stuff from the world and get more money. Capitalism with a small c says, where are the customers who have a problem and how can I solve it? If I was talking to the senior management at Amazon, Amazon has a search engine built in. They're one of the biggest deliverers of search. How do they decide what they will show you when you search for something? Well, if they change the algorithm so that the things that came up first, if there's a tie, are things that adequately include the price of carbon are really well packaged in the sense that they don't create a lot of waste and are durable so that they become more efficient. Guess what every company in the world would do? They would race as fast as they could to win that search by changing what they make and how they make it. Instead of getting something that's made out of plastic, wrapped in plastic, encased in plastic, and then put in a plastic box, you would get something that had a significantly different impact on the world at scale. And number two, let's think about what would happen if we priced carbon fairly. If we did that, the price of taking a private jet, I heard from someone two days ago who had a friend who hired a private jet to bring a cloned puppy from Texas to London by itself, a dog in a jet. That flight probably cost $150,000. 
that flight should cost $900,000 because all of that fuel burned to move the puppy across the world costs all of us. If those things start happening, the marketplace is going to take a really deep breath and say, how fast can we replace the things that we're using that use carbon with things that don't? And when we put a price on carbon, we see that almost instantly people change their behavior. Basic economics says people buy more of something when it's cheap. So let's make the stuff that is regenerative and resilient cheap and charge a lot for the stuff that costs us all a lot. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. We are in a situation that's an emergency, so we don't have time to reinvent the system. So capitalism is what we've got. We've got to work with it. But what you're really suggesting is putting a price on carbon, and traditionally that needs to come from government. So what you're really talking about is a type of capitalism without um, that neoliberal overlay. So it allows for interference. Or are you suggesting that there's a way that industry and business can drive that carbon price? Well, industry and business are trying to do it, but they're, I mean, the whole ESG thing and organizations setting themselves up for what they know is inevitable. So I actually believe that what is happening is they are, industry is setting itself up so that when carbon pricing becomes a reality, they'll be ready. Now is the moment. There's a group in the United States that's half Republicans, half Democrats that has worked out all the details of a dividend and border adjustment. So the dividend says, we're going to give everybody a check for $3,000 US, and we're going to get the money for that check by pricing carbon. So it's net. The government doesn't take a penny. If you did that one simple thing, things would change within an hour. It doesn't have to hurt people with less privilege. It's not that hard to organize it so that you are able to still live the life that you want to live. But no, we are not going to be able to say everything is going to be the same and we just got rid of pollution and climate change. That's not the case. Things are going to get less convenient. Things are going to be bumpy, but it's better to have them bumpy now than to have to dig out New York City when it's under two feet of water. You have a big chapter on the tyranny of convenience and capitalism is is completely linked to this idea of convenience. So much of what it tries to do is enable us to buy comfort and convenience. This is a discussion we need to have and I'm so glad you have that discussion in your book. The idea that we need to get much more cool with the idea of being a little bit more uncomfortable. You I know, I've heard you speak on this. Um, you really try to sell in the idea of discomfort as a good thing. I'd really love to go in that direction just now off the back of this capitalism discussion because I think we need to do capitalism plus also accept we are going to have to live with less of the comforts that capitalism has traditionally brought. How do you sell that in as a marketing concept? Okay, there's a difference between comfort and convenience. I think it's very important to, to break them apart. And as a marketer, I'll try to, to help here. What advertising has tried to do for a very long time is help people feel insecure and inadequate until they buy something. That's not comfort. 
That's intentionally inflicting discomfort to get somebody to buy something. Convenience says that pay an extra nickel and this thing will be over with faster so you can get home and watch more television. It says, give us all your privacy and all your information and you won't have to click three times. It's just more convenient. Convenience is a pretty new thing for marketers to sell. And what Tim is arguing in his essay about convenience, it turned out that the internet was really good at selling us convenience, that people are willing to pay extra time and privacy, give away all sorts of rights to get something delivered to their house instead of having to walk down the street and get it. But comfort, comfort comes from peace of mind. Comfort comes from belonging. Comfort comes from tribal identity and fairness and dignity. We can sell people comfort instead of selling them convenience. It's just not as convenient for the marketer to do so. But there's a long history of marketers being smart enough to sell comfort instead of convenience. We've been sold for so long that comfort is not having to live with uncertainty, not having to wait. I think that's the big shift that we've got to make as a culture. And that's going to take marketing. We're going to have to market this new form of comfort, this idea that if we belong in community and if we go without every now and then, if we've got to wait, if we don't have the perfect version of something wrapped in plastic, um, you know, that is a good thing. So let's go back to this idea of marketing because last time we spoke, you flagged this idea that climate is a marketing problem. It's just a matter of will and collective will at scale, at, you know, warp speed. What are some of the lessons that you've got? What are some of the more refined marketing tricks that you have learned and witnessed that work that you can share with us? Well, I need to interrupt that generous question by pointing out that the thing that's working the worst right now is greenwashing. It has become a crutch and a shortcut for someone who's trying to reach a certain kind of consumer to sell that consumer on something that feels like it is climate aware. The good news is that once people start down that path, they don't want to feel like they changed their mind. So they will stay on that path and we will get closer and closer to the right thing. But we are not going to consume our way out of this problem. So the real marketing is the marketing of changing public perception about, as you said, comfort changing public perception about what it is that we do around here. So if you think about how did cigarettes disappear in a reasonably short period of time, how did gay marriage in many countries appear and get put into law in a reasonably short amount of time? We know how to do these things. Gay marriage is not convenient, but it is right and fair and just. It offers people dignity and comfort. So we know how to do things like that, but there are entities that are working overtime to create doubt and confusion. So we'll just go back to picking things that are convenient instead. I'm really glad you bring up the greenwashing thing. And that's really interesting. I'm writing a piece about it at the moment and just there's a lot of greenwashing going on and there are no bodies actually controlling what messages are going out there. It's a bit like the Wild West and it'll stay that way until I think the government bodies get a handle of, you know, how carbon setting, offsetting works, net zero, what is net zero, is it helpful and so on. But that's a really interesting point that the good thing about it is that once a brand goes down that rabbit hole of making claims, they don't want to get off the path and suddenly abort mission. They're going to want to refine it. That's something that actually just set off a light bulb for me. Like that's a really good way of looking at things because I think activists feel very concerned that this greenwashing is going to ruin the message. People are going to go, well, look, you know, if I can't trust these messages, why even bother? The adults in the room don't have this thing sorted, so I'm just going to get on with burning more carbon. But you make a really good point. Once you see a bit of this, you can't unsee it. And our cognitive biases are such that we want to stay on track and we want to get it right. I guess I would want to drill down to some examples that you've seen of, I don't know, marketing techniques that are really working in this space. Well, so there are a bunch of things all overlapping. So let's talk about a couple of them. In the US, meteorologists, weather people, are some of the most trusted people in media, which is amazing because they're wrong about the weather all the time, but they're very trusted. 
And I'm working with a group that is communicating to meteorologists how they can describe the weather in terms of climate. And the same way that there's the wind chill factor that explains why it's super cold because it's windy out, they are helping to bring in a climate change factor that explains why it's so much warmer than you're used to. Today's weather, how much of it was impacted by the changes in our climate? Now, that's not going to change anybody's consumption, but what it is going to do is create a baseline of understanding, right? It's not supposed to be 104 degrees Fahrenheit right now, but it is. And the reason is 100 years of burning coal. So that, that's one thing. Another thing is when we see people shifting at an institutional level, for example, I don't fly anymore to do my work. And that's after a thousand speeches around the world. If I don't show up to give a speech and I'm there in Zoom, that's in public. I make it safer for other people to say, I'm not flying anymore either. And so suddenly a conference that might've involved a thousand people getting on an airplane now involves no people getting on an airplane. Those sorts of things start to change the way the culture has expectations. Because I got to tell you, when my dad started in business in 1960, there wasn't an expectation that someone was going to get on an airplane to meet with you for an hour. That was absurd. Airplanes got cheap, and so it became standard in business. Well, now it's going in the other direction. What we are seeing is in lots of different places, you have to apologize for things you used to brag about. You can brag about things you used to apologize for. And that is what culture change looks like. And is it a matter of people like you and me, we've got platforms, we've got some sort of influence going first and secondly, trying to make it look cool? Well, I think that that is part of it. I mean, marketing is people like us do things like this. So who are the people like us and what are the things like this? A talk someone gave about a supersonic jet his company is building. I got to tell you, eight years ago, that sort of thing would get you a standing ovation at TED. And now people are like, what? You're doing what? We don't need you to build a petrol-powered supersonic transport so that rich people can get to London 45 minutes sooner. Please don't do that. If you're not going to get a standing ovation for doing that work and it's so hard, maybe you'll work on the electric airplane instead. Or a blimp, as Kay Stanley Robinson presents to us in his book. I love blimps. Uh, so I love I, blimps. I love the idea of blimps, you know. I think, you know, that was an incredible marketing exercise because so many people who read that book went, how cool would it be if blimps came back, you know, if that's how we got from A to B. Now, look, it's, it's tricky, isn't it, Seth, because so often in these kinds of interviews, and I'm tempted to ask you the question now, we do get asked, what are the three things that listeners can do right now, you know? And I feel very conflicted because on the one hand, I want to give, you know, some advice, some hacks that people can go off and get engaged in. And by the way, my answer is reasonably useful, and that is combat food waste. Project Drawdown talks about this. It is something that consumers can do straight away. It needs to come you know, from all of us collectively, also with a momentum that spreads far and wide. But, you know, food waste was a nation. It would be the third biggest carbon emitter after China and the US. So, you know, it's a big thing to focus on. But I love your answer. And that is, you tend to say you won't answer that question because it's a trap. Do you want to explain what you mean by that? It's a trap. It's a trap based on convenience. You know, Project Drawdown is an extraordinary project and we're big fans of it and they were helpful to us. But if you look at the Project Drawdown rankings, the most doable thing is dealing with refrigerants that are sitting in old air conditioners and refrigerators in industrial settings all throughout Australia, the United States, Canada, et cetera. In the amount of time and effort it would take you to actually deal with food waste, because food waste is not finish what's on your plate because kids in China are starving. Food waste is one third of the food is disappearing before it even gets to your house. The typical consumer can't do anything about that. 300 consumers banding together can get the government to say, yeah, we got to start pumping that refrigerant out of these machines before it breaks and goes into the atmosphere. And if you do that, you will have made a huge impact with only 300 people. Anything that feels like it's about carbon footprint, about eating your vegetables, about 
parking a block away and walking about recycling composting. your plastic. Yeah. Yeah. Please, if you can do it, fine with me. But it is not the answer. It is what the oil companies want you to do so that they can have five more years before they retire. That's what they keep doing. In the Almanac, we got a memo that an engineer at Exxon wrote 40 years ago, and it describes in detail what was going to happen to the climate, and he was right. They're just stalling. I don't understand how they go to sleep at night, but that's what they're doing. Exxon buried that information, and it's only been revealed, surfaced again, and so we lost 30 years of potential progress in this fight. Correct. And so anything that you're doing that involves you quietly and privately doing something is a mistake. Buy some copies of the Almanac and have a conversation and then keep having conversations until other people have conversations because that is how we have changed everything in the world in my lifetime and how you can change the world. I would slightly disagree with you there because I do think these small actions are the thing that inspire people. We need entry-level drugs and often recycling or carrying a keep cup get people enthused, engaged, feeling like they're doing something. Now, of course, there's the one action bias. You think that if you've done one action, there's nothing more to do. But flip side, you can actually use it as the basis for continuing the story and getting people worked up thinking about the crisis. I know people who've said to me, oh, my husband now uses a keep cup. And as a result, he's taken more interest in learning about the carbon, you know, the carbon issues, the climate crisis and so on. So I do believe that anyone who is engaged in this fight does need to do everything they can. They need to be a walking advertisement, not just for the responsibility, but also how much we can make it joyful. It's a subtlety and I think it's a not either or, but it's both working towards this idea of systemic change because that needs to be the focus. But I do take your point that really everybody listening should be aware that you don't need to feel guilty about these things and and to be aware that it's a ploy. I mean, plastic, Seth, is a a prime example. Less than 9% of the plastic that we carefully try to recycle into different bins or sort into bins gets in fact, recycle. I think it's even less. I think it's like three or five percent in the US, right? The petrochemical companies are amping up the plastic recycling message because you know why? As we start to use less fossil fuels for energy production, what are they going to do with it all? Well, the companies are now pushing it towards plastic. I think over the next 10 years, we are going to be producing more plastic than ever before. They're amping it up and they're going to make us want to feel okay about using it. Buyer beware of the plastic recycling message because it's going to be coming from the big fossil fuel industries because they need to do something with this excess product, which is, by the way, not excess, but they need to keep making money. And, you know, we're all switching to, to renewable energy sources. Well, so let me, let me ask you a question. And you're the good guys, and I'm not going to argue with you, but I was at the supermarket yesterday and there were two choices for arugula. Which is rocket for anyone listening in Australia. Rocket, yes. Mm -hmm. It's a much better name, rocket. There were two (laughs) choices for rocket. Rocket, five ounces in the plastic clamshell, was four US dollars. And rocket by the head for the same amount was $2 more. How much extra are you going to spend to voluntarily buy rocket that isn't in a plastic clamshell? Most people, and my town is very progressive, who have keep cups and see themselves as environmentalists, might pay 15 cents extra, but they're not willing to pay $2 extra. In that moment, when you are choosing convenience, because it's already washed, and price, and you know the facts, and yet you did it, because in the back of your head, you're saying to yourself, well, it's just one clamshell, and it's a big price difference. In that moment, you're not going to buy the one doesn't come in plastic. You're going to buy the plastic one. And so the problem we have with people engaging in the theory of little steps is the big step, the hard step is making a phone call, going over to the manager of the supermarket, starting a petition. But the fact is, if only 20 people at my local food town said, stop selling lettuce in plastic clamshells, they would change their display. And what I'm arguing is we need to embrace the discomfort because we are out of time. I took a big hit in my career and in the trajectory of what I do, and I volunteered on this every day for a year. 
because it's uncomfortable. And that's what we have to do. If it's comfortable, if it comes with a nice logo and it's a nicer way to drink your coffee, it doesn't count. What uncomfortable, inconvenient things are we willing to do to change the system, not simply to be a consumer? That's my rant. I would add to that. I would encourage people, and I do that via one of my cookbooks. It was the first completely zero waste cookbook that was produced in the world because the making of it was zero waste, 348 recipes. But the point that I make is I buy the non-plastic wrapped version of the rocket because it lasts so much longer. And anything wrapped in plastic, you know, anything that's alive will wilt within two days and people end up chucking it out. So it ends up costing you three times as much because you've got to go back to the supermarket and buy another version. And tip out there, those of you who've been following me for a while will probably know this one. Even if you end up with something in plastic, take it out, rinse it and wrap it in an old tea towel or an old pillowcase. It will last about two weeks in the crisper. If it's in plastic, it'll last less than 48 hours. So that's the argument that I'd make. But look, you've found for me a very nice note to end things on. And that is this idea of comfort. We've got to make slight discomfort sexier again, including going up to your supermarket manager as a group, as a collective and speaking out. I really do want to pick your brains though, before I let you go on how do we make discomfort kind of cool? Well, we do it all the time. I mean, in the US, CrossFit became a multi, multi-million dollar brand promising you blisters, et cetera, that Patagonia's journey was all about being outdoors when it's really cold and rainy. Generations of people come along who say, I will demonstrate my status by no longer insulating myself from whatever elements are around me. I will march on Washington even though I don't have to. And we are seeing this moment where people are choosing who have privilege, like I do, to demonstrate their yeah. status. And that's a challenge maybe we can put out to all marketers and advertisers is to start shifting things to that kind of message, rewarding and placing sort of hero status on the people who are willing to go into discomfort and speak out, do what is required, fire up, speak to the supermarket manager or the local council about leaf blowers. We need to shift the storyline on who our heroes are. Seth, that's very helpful. I really appreciate chatting to you once again. Everybody get out there and buy the Carbon Almanac. You almost need it at every barbecue you go to, at every dinner party you go to, so you can flick through the index and find the data, the factlets, the factoids that you can drop into a conversation and get people talking about this stuff instead of, I don't know, where they're going to send their school, kids to school next year. This needs to be the dominant conversation where we're, we're sharing those did you knows about leaf blowers and, and patio heaters. Seth, go forth. Please keep up this work. Please show us how it's done. You're an inspiration. Well, every day I am admiring your leadership. So thank you for showing up, walking the walk and talking the talk. I appreciate your time. I'm super glad that that rambling chat wound up on the discomfort piece. And it is always a rambling chat with Seth, but they're peppered with so many wonderful factlets and marketing slogans that we can take away with us. I personally don't think we will make it. We won't solve or survive this crisis if we don't see a massive zeitgeist shift around letting go of this idea we are meant to be comfortable. I mean, the spiritualists and the philosophers, our grandmothers, you know, they've always pushed the wisdom that we are meant to be uncomfortable, that when we're uncomfortable, that's when the good things happened. And so we need to get back to this original and very wise narrative. Another thought I really want to give some extra emphasis to, and we discuss it a bit, and Seth's Climate Almanac book illustrates it. There is no perfect coordinated way to do the climate fight. And I know a lot of people get stalled on this. They're almost waiting for the coherent path to present itself. No one, none of us know the exact answer. We just have to do everything that we can that feels right, attacking from all the different angles, you know. And I heard Seth say once before, we can't wait for all the perfect information to come in. And so often perfect can be the enemy of the good. Finally, I will take the opportunity to highlight again where I disagree with Seth, or at least, you know, it's where I'm keen to be a little bit more refined. 
individual climate footprint stuff is indeed a ploy or a tactic. And we've got to, we've got to be aware of that, you know, and we should call it out so that we're not distracted. But my concern is that, you know, by declaring that we shouldn't recycle, or if we overemphasize the worthlessness of individual action, you know, we kind of end up with the same result. We end up distracting and confusing people into inaction. So, you know, I thought about this a lot and I often get asked about it, you know, at conferences and on panels. We need to do both. We do individual action, not because we're being duped, but because it is the perfect advertising model for hope. You know, we'll get there if we all give a shit all at once. And carrying a keep cup loud and proud, you know, it spreads the give a shit vibe. Recycling and buying the naked rocket instead of the packaged one tells our kids and our neighbours, you know, that the adults, we're signed up, we're ready to go. But yes, let's get uncomfortable and petition our local councils to do things like banning leaf blowers. You know what? I'm off to do just that right now and I will revert back and tell you how I got on. I'll see you next week. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.